It's good to talk my ass. Rest my ass, crab's ass, my ass. Career my ass. Bridesmaid my ass. Pasta my ass. Borrow my ass. Bless her my ass. Talk to my ass. I see my ass. Hello and welcome to episode 50, yes, the big 5-0 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark, and I actually can't believe it, we've done it, we've got to number 50. And everyone knows this is a side project to my main podcast, Skip to the End, and it's one-on-one interviews that was only meant to be now and then, and it's become kind of a regular, bi-weekly podcast because more and more guests are jumping on board, and I actually can't believe we're there. 50 episodes in the bag. So to celebrate, on today's episode, I'm joined by Ricky Tomlinson. For me, this is a huge deal. I absolutely love him in The Royal Family. It's one of my most watched TV shows. Whenever I'm down in the dumps, it's that and only fools that always cheer me up. And it's just absolutely awesome that he's joined me. And I thought, what better way to celebrate the Big 5-0 than Jim Royal himself, Ricky Tomlinson. Before we get into today's episode, I do want to touch base on the last episode, so I was joined by the director Steve Nesbitt, and this was the second part of the three-part special for the Gloves Off film, and it was awesome to be joined by him. The feedback again was fantastic, and it's really nice that people jump on board for the less-known people in the industry, and not just the big, huge stars, and some of the emails I got and some of the people that are getting into film said... They found it really, really interesting and lots of useful information that has helped them and they've absolutely loved the interview, so thanks to everyone that's listened. So as I said at the start, today I'm joined by Ricky Tomlinson and I'm absolutely thrilled he's on today's episode. So instead of kind of waiting around and talking, let's just get straight to it. So here it is, here's me and Ricky Tomlinson for Mark and Me Podcast. Thank you for joining me today, Ricky. First of all, I want to know at what age when you were growing up did you want to be an actor? I never ever physically thought about it though, uh, as, as a child, because my me, me working class obviously is very, very, uh, my background is very, very working class. Yeah. So no, we never think about being an actor, but I was always, um, I was always putting little shows on and stuff like that and playing and the leader of the gang in the street with, you know, marching up and down, playing music and banging the drums, but no, never sort of consciously ever thought about, about being an actor now. Was there a actor or a film or some director that you used to watch as a kid and think I want to be on screen or? No but I mean I, I used to love Saturday afternoon the matinees we used to go me and say one of my brothers I've got three brothers would go with probably the eldest brother and we, we'd go to the local cinema and then then they would say it's about six pence. Wow. And, we, and we'd got up uh, the majority of the films on the Saturday afternoon were cowboy films which I wasn't very and I'm a I didn't sort of really like cowboys and Indians, but um, but I used to enjoy the, the escapism and stuff like that. But uh, so yeah, I used to enjoy the cinema as such. And, and then later on, as we got older, and, and, and our parents would take us as a bit of a treat, you know, we started seeing, you know, we, we started seeing other, other movies and that. And as I say, I always enjoyed it, but still never dreamt that one day I'd be on the screen. Never. 
So you never went to any acting school or anything like that, did you? You just kind of, no. you, you've no. just, you've no. just, uh, I'm afraid not yet. And even so, we wouldn't have been able to afford it in them days. I mean, my mum had, my mum and dad had four lads. Yeah. And, and my mum worked two or three jobs. My dad was a, 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 a baker. He worked 27 years on nights. So there was no, no, there was no discussion about anything like that. I mean, I used to go to like loads of boys clubs and stuff like that, which, which was great. And, Played football for the school and and but now acting classes wouldn't have. Been. I mean, in them days, amongst the working class, it was unheard of. I mean, you're going back seventy odd years, aren't you? I'm, I'm eighty next year, you know. So, no, no chance. So, where did it come about then? How did it fall that you became into acting? Well, it came up. It came about after I came out of prison. Yeah. Because as you know, and people laugh at this. People laugh at what I'm going to tell you. I, I tell everybody, when I go down and I talk and, that, and, I, and I speak to people, and I, I tell them I was a political prisoner. And they say, well, we don't have political prisoners in this country. And I say, well, I have this piece of paper, which I carry with me everywhere, from Amnesty International, saying that Amnesty International had adopted us as prisoners of conscience. And what happened is, Desi Warren, who got the three years, I got two years. The day I left prison was the day that we were granted prisoners of conscience um, status. So, um, so really, I mean, I mean, Desi, God love Desi, poor old Desi, um, the way they treated him in jail actually, in my opinion, caused his death. Caused his death. And um, he never worked again when he came out. He never worked after he came out of prison. And also, a lot of people, I don't know if you've read my autobiography, but it, it's all in the autobiography, is that Desi Warren, um, I had never met him. I had never met him before the building workers went on strike. And it's the one and only ever official building strike, by the way. Yeah. But what, I didn't know any of them lads in the dock with me, any of the other five, until uh, the building strike came about. And yet the, the, the government chose to do us for conspiracy, which is a, it's a bit farcical. And it's 40-odd um, it's years now since we were sentenced. And they still won't release the papers. And we've had people um, applying for saying, look, why don't you release the papers? And they say, no, it, it, it's in the interest of national security not to release the, the, the papers under the Freedom of Information Act. So it's a bit of a farce, you know, I mean, I'm just, you know, I mean, we go on about being, you know, the mother of democracy and all like that. Democracy really doesn't exist in this country today. So what was the biggest learning thing from being in prison for a couple of years? What was the thing that you came out that changed your life? Well, it, it changed my life completely against the ruling class. Completely against the ruling class is that they can do what they want, when they want, with whom they want. Yeah. And um, my telephone was tapped in the 1970s. Uh, and, 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 you know, people don't understand. They say to me, well, you, you, you know, you, did, you got out. and What they don't realise is I didn't want to come out of jail. I was thrown out. They had a meeting with me, two building workers and an MP, an MP called Tom Litterick, from he was from Birmingham somewhere, and they forced me out of jail. They said, you've got to go home. I said, I'm not going. To, I'm going to do me full time. I want nothing, nothing of this government. He said, no, you've got to go home. Because what they were doing, they were frightened of Desi, my mate dying in prison. And he had the next three, he had a year longer than me to do. And they said to me, if you do your full two years, you know Jesse will, will do his full three, and he's not well enough. So I had, I had to leave under a cloud. I didn't want to come out. No. I didn't want to come out. I knew it was an embarrassment to the, to the bloody government. 
It was outrageous what he'd done. And let me tell you something about um, about Gareth Clark. I know he's pissed most of the time. <laughs> and, and, he, and he can put that in, lad. I couldn't give him monkeys. Yeah. He, 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 um, we, we, I wrote to him and, and uh, to say about releasing the papers. Now, I've got to, anything I'm telling you, I've got back up here, say, about all the papers. Yeah. He, Kenneth Clark said they're not... The government isn't going to review, not release. They're not going to review the papers concerning Dewsbury until the year 2021. Now, why? That's nearly 50 years. What's going on? That is very weird. It's very weird. Yeah. To get on more of a positive side, even though that was a real bad time when you did come out, then you started to land roles in stuff like Brookside and Cracker. Um, yeah. some of the most classic TV to look back I still watch Cracker now and I think it's yeah. so so well written it's absolutely magic Jimmy TV. McGovern lives just around the corner from me wow but you know you know it was funny because when I went to the audition for Brookside see I'd read somewhere in the paper they were looking for someone to um, to, to, to play a part in a, in a film and, but must have trade union experience well obviously I was in I was in the, the trade union um, I, and I went down to London, drove down in an old van with a mate of mine, because I was living in North Wales. And I drove down in a van with a mate of mine, a lad, a lad uh, called Tony Gates. And Tony was a bricklayer, and he was going, he said, well, I'll go with you, and I'll go to try and get a job on the barbecue, and you go and do this audition. And we went in this old van, and I just pulled, I'd never driven to London before. And I'd just seen this bloody sign at the side of the road, London, and we parked the van behind there. And I had to work, I didn't know, I was going to a place called Upper Ground, which was LWT's offices. And I walked, I had no money but for, for anything like that. So I had to walk, and by the time I got there, the holes in my feet, and, and, and uh, my feet were bleeding, you know. And I met this fellow called Roland Joffey. You know, I didn't know, because when I filled a form and applied for the audition, I put a phony name on. Yeah. And he, he was winding me up, winding me up, and I didn't know he was winding me up, like, and he was saying, like, we've got the best police force in the world. I said, no, we haven't. And he said, this, this, this. And I said, no, and I was arguing with him. So in the end, I said to him, stick your job up your ass. But <laughs> you stick it up your ass. And I walked out, got in the lift, and I'm going down in the lift from his officers, and he's shouting after me, I, I know who you are, and I'm shouting, fuck off. But <laughs> I know who you are, you're Ricky Tomlinson. And then when I got down and my mate was waiting for me, he said, uh, did you get the expenses? Because we had no money for that. So I'm not to look, Christ. Back in the lift, back up. Go in and say, yeah. And, you know, you've got to front it then, haven't you? I just said to him, what about these expenses? And he said to the girl, whoever it was, was there a girl called Nicky, was it Nicky Finch? I think his name was Nicky Finch's office. He said, um, get, get, give him 25 pounds. So that was it. So we were able to get home. And then later on, to cut the story short, we'd done what they call a workshop. He said to me, if I do this movie and I give you a couple of lines of it, you won't let me down, will you? And I went, oh, I won't let you down. Anyway, it turned out it was the lead. It was the lead, and people in the movie were like uh, Rosemary Martin, uh, Anthony Benson, Bill Patterson, wow. Peter Kerrigan, and here's me, not knowing what the score was. And, um, and anyway, when the movie came out, it was two and a half hours long. It was called United Kingdom. It was played for the day on the BBC, and I got absolute rave reviews. But two amazing things happened while it was being shown. One, Brookside was just getting set up, and Phil Redmond had got a group of writers together, and one of them was a lad called Andy Lynch, and he's 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 going through the, well, he's what they're going to write for Brookside, and he's watching 
to play United Kingdom and he just picked the phone up and he phoned Phil Redmond and he said, um, I've just found Bobby Grant. So from watching my performance on United Kingdom, I, I didn't know then, obviously, but I did later on that I'd already been picked to play Bobby Grant. But I met David Putnam oh, years ago, at some airport somewhere, I just forget where it was now, and I spoke to him for a few minutes and he said, um, he, he, he said, uh, he said, you do me a big favour. I said, I done you a favour, never met him, you know. He said, yeah, he said, um, I was doing, a, a, I had a movie to do called The Killing Fields. He said, and um, he said, I couldn't find a director to do it, he said, because like Lochi was working, Mike Cleave was working, all the all the big name directors were working. He said, and I was in my office, he said, and the clocks were about eight o'clock at night. He said, book it, I've had enough. He said, I'm going to go in and a cup of tea and watch the telly. And he switched the telly on and he thought he was watching a fly on the wall documentary. And it's a scene from the United Kingdom where I'm smacking the little lad on the head. The lad's crying, I'm crying. Val McLean, who played my wife, she's crying. And, and he thought it was a documentary. And when it came up, and he found out it was a film, on the strength of that, he phoned Roland Joffey and gave him the the, uh, the director's job for the killing fields. So it, it, it's amazing what happens, you know, from a little bit of Ooh, telly, like that, I've got yeah. a job which lasted five years, Roland went on to do the killing fields, which, which was absolutely amazing, and uh, it, it's strange what happens, isn't it? It's all meant to be, I think, sometimes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I don't know if this is true, and obviously you can now confirm it, but when you were filming Mike Bassett, did you actually yeah. have to turn down the part in Minority Report? Yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know what the movie was, I had to, no... I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we would offer the job in my policy. I don't know, because we should look after all that. All yeah. I know is if I'm working, then I have to concentrate because I'm not trained, obviously, and I have to work hard to learn the lines and do all that. And and, and um, but I so I don't know about whether that was that. Um, but 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 I know, um, I know one of the famous. Uh, that's the first time I met Bradley when when I done um, Mike Bass's Bradley Walsh. Yeah, and he was amazing. He was wonderful. We had a great time. It was made, we, were, we were like the three musketeers. There was Bradley Walsh, me, and another actor, a great actor called Phil Jackson. You may see uh, Phil's always in the Poirot movies, yes, you yes, know, yeah. in, the, in the films with Poirot, with David Suchet. And uh, we had a great time together. It was a, that's where I actually went to try and get Ronnie Biggs to be in the movie. And um, uh, we went to the... Phil, I said to Phil Jackson, because they were looking for someone to play the bomb, and they wanted someone... The scene where I dance along the, the, the bar, but I'm pissed. Yeah. And we, you know, the game and that. And he said, we could do with someone to play. I said, well, I'll go and get Ronnie Biggs, we were, you know, because we were in Brazil. And he went, uh, what do you think you can? I said, yeah. So anyway, Phil Jackson came with me. We had, our, we had our own show for, like, the lad who spoke the local language, Portuguese, I think. And I said, look, I want to go to this pub, uh, this tavern up in, the, up in the hills where Ronnie Biggs is. And he said, anyway, he took us, and I went in, and I said, excuse me, I'm, I'm looking for Ronnie Biggs. And the place went quiet. They went, no, 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 it's not in my And they more or less us out. And I said, to, uh, I said to Phil Jackson, I said, I'm going back to my I said, I know he's there. So I wrote a letter to say, look, I hear Ronnie, this is, you know, blam. we're doing a movie, we're looking for someone speak English to play the part of a bomb and that's all, there's no straight, nothing like, you know, it's nothing going toward 
and I went back up the next day with Phil in the car, the fellow waiting outside. And I walked in, and the atmosphere was quite different, but this lady, as soon as I walked in, this lady dressed from head to toe in white, come to me. And she said, I believe you're looking for Ronnie Biggs. I said, I am. I said, but look, there's nothing untoward. I said, it's a little job for him. And she said, um, I said, I've got this letter for him, and I give her the letter. And she said, I'll make sure he gets it. And I went, I went to give her, like, a little tip to get yeah. a drink. She went, no, I don't want nothing. She said, but I promise you, she said, he'll get the letter. Unknowns to me, apparently he was next door and he was being escorted by reporters from the Sun newspaper back to England. Wow. And when 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 it, it come on the television, there he is, walking off the plane with uh, a T-shirt on with the Sun on his thing. So, you know, I missed him by a couple of minutes. He might have been a, a film star instead of going to jail for another eight years. That's crazy. It's, but it's the truth, you see. I would be yeah. a criminal not to sit here now and talk about the royal family now. Uh, I'm 36 years old, and it, that and Only Falls are my go-to TV. If I ever feel down in the dumps, I literally switch it on, and I always feel safe, I feel at home. It's, it's a love. I know fellas. There's fellas I went to school with, and when I see them knocking round, because, uh, you know, obviously I still live in Liverpool and that, and they, they shout, all right, Jim? <laughs> they, all right, Jim? He thinks, oh, sorry, Dick, bloody hell, Dick, you know this girl. And, and like, like, some of them will just say, it us a favour. Do you know what I, do you know what I get a lot of now, lad? And, and people say, don't you get fed up with them? I say, no, I bloody don't. People say, do us a favour, my mum's not well. Can you just say, uh, and I'll say, what's her name, uh, Rosie, okay? And I'll, and they put the phone up and I just say, all right, Rosie, it's Jim here. Now, you're, you're bleeding down in the dumps. Don't you be down in the dumps. Come on, Rosie. Now, I'll be, I'll be asking after you, so come on, pull your socks up. Get yourself <laughs> better and God bless. <laughs> all the time. I do that all the time. And people say, doesn't it get on your nerves? I say, get out of it. Yeah. But why, why, why would it get on me nerves, lad? It only takes a minute of your time. People stop you. Um, all the time, you do. But I don't know whether you're into country music at all. Are you? I like I like some of it, and I know I that I know that you played all the banjo once on the actual. I did play, yeah, but, yeah. But there's, a, there's, a, there's an Irish lad. Well, he's a scout, and he was born in Liverpool, and, and he goes. He went to live in Ireland, and he's selling millions, millions of records now. His name is Nathan Carter. If you have you Google him, lad, Jesus, he sells out everywhere. He, Nathan Carter. Anyway, I've. Uh, I was going to Spain one day, going to Benidorm. I was on the on the on the plane, and there was a family an Irish family on the on the plane. And this little lad came up to me and he went, "Can I have your autograph, please?" I said, "Look, can you wait till we we land?" I said, "Then we can have a photograph and and a photo uh, an autograph and a photograph." I said, "Well, you know, the while the plane's just landing like this, so that was it. So we landed, and the the kid." They were miles ahead of me with the cases, and I run after this kid and I shouted, "Hey, ah, kid! I haven't forgot." And he and he he, he come back. We had our photograph of him, an autograph. And years later, I'm, I'm meeting. I'm, I'm talking to Nathan Carter, who's now this mega country and western star. And he said, "Do you remember this thing when you were going to Benidorm and going to Spain once, and you stopped and you run after this kid and shouted him back for a photograph?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "That was my brother." Bloody hell. Isn't that amazing, lad? That's unbelievable. Isn't that a, 
And Nathan, now, you can't get a ticket for this show. He sells arenas out. That's oh, he, insane. He's a lovely, lovely lad. You know, I've, I've met him since, obviously, and he's a lovely, lovely lad. And you see, these names I mentioned, you won't know, like Foster and Alan and Ch Charlie Lansbrer and Nathan. I, I love country music, you know. And uh, now and again, I go over to Ireland to see Charlie Lansbrer when he plays. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll go on the stage and introduce Charlie to a second to a second spot. Then afterwards, I'll go for a drink, although I don't drink now, like I haven't drank for a while. Um, I'll, I'll sit in their company and listen to all these stories that they've got. Because they've all got amazing stories, absolutely. Charlie Lansbrer is a wonderful... He, look these names up, lad, when we finish talking. I'm writing them all Charlie down. Charlie Lansbrer. He, he looks like Merlin, the wizard. Yeah. There's, like, you know, the beard and big... His hair's past his shoulders and... He has wonderful stories, absolutely wonderful stories. And you can just sit and listen and... And, and, and enjoy a night out with them, you know, and, uh, you know, I've been very lucky. Did you think when you were on set and you were filming this in a living room with such a simple concept that it would ever be as big as it was? Because still now it's on telly nearly every day, it's on Netflix, <laughs> everyone loves it. No, I mean, you don't know. And after the first, you know, after after the first episode went out, my mum used to live in the, in the lovely flat that was built by Liverpool City Council. You know, the council done a lot in them days. Yeah. Liverpool City Council. But anyway, she had this beautiful flat. And I drove along and um, she opened the window. I, I had an old van and it was only just taken off. So I, I drove along and she opened the window and she said, where did you learn language like that? <laughs> it's a good job your father's dead. He'd be ashamed of you. I said, Mum, I'm a building worker. I've stood on the cop in Anfield for 20 years. That's where I learned that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> she said, it was terrible. Anyway, the, a couple of weeks later, she pulled me up and she said, Nick, she said, it's so funny. She said, there must be something wrong with my sense of humour. She was, she was made up. Mm. And, of course, people would go to me mums and say, uh, do you think you can get a, a photograph of, of your Rick? You know, me being Jim Royal. Yeah. So I used to take her a little packet of photographs and she'd have them and people had knocked the neighbours for the kids and their grandkids and she'd, she'd give them it, you know, for them. Yeah, she's a bit of a crude, but ma'am, she was wonderful. It's the best one to impress, though. If your mum likes your work, you know you've done done proud. Oh, she was amazing. She was an amazing woman, honest to God, kid. So your most recent film, uh, Gloves Off, uh, you got yeah. to work with Steve Nesbitt, the director. I've spoke to him recently and I've also interviewed Brad Moore. Now, Brad Moore tells me that you're the funniest man alive Oh, God. Every scene that you were doing when you were backstage, he had to kind of walk away to compose himself because he just couldn't stop laughing at your stories. And... You've got to, you see, but do you know what was good about that movie? I haven't seen it yet, by the way. I haven't seen it yet. But that director, that Steve Nesbitt, he's a one-off. Yeah. Because I don't think he's from that type of background. I'm not sure. I think he might be ex-military. I'm not sure. And he was wonderful, and he would—he gives you license. You've got your lines, and obviously you've got to use your tagline so people can come in with their lines. But you can extemporate, and you can sort of ad-lib and do stuff like that. And I always find, even even now, even now, if, if people come here, if you can have a laugh with people, it, it just makes the day go a lot better. So we had a wonderful time. And uh, But there's, there's a young guy in it um, called... Um, Gary Cargill. Oh, he's a bit special, this kid. Yeah. Now, he's, he's a Liverpool lad, but he's rather, rather trained, you know, Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. 
He's trained there and he's what an actor this fellow is. And then there's Paul Barber. Now, Paul Barber, you know Paul Barber has Lonely Fools and Horses. Yeah, one of the best characters around. He plays Denzel. Now, he, he's as old as Methuselah. He's as old as Methuselah. And what a laugh we used to have with him. And do you know what? Here's the, the camaraderie that went on. While we were filming that, uh, someone stole my car. Someone stole my car. Fucking hell. He would come and pick me up every morning. Take me to work to Leeds, even if he wasn't working. Wait for me to finish and drive me home. What a legend. You know, even, I mean, if like the film people put you up in the hotel, but I, I, if I can, you know, within striking distance, I like to come home. And Paul Barber done that every day till I got me, till I got me, 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 me replacement car, you know. But, but having said that, listen to this lad talk about fate. About, God, I don't know, it must be 20 years ago or something. I went on holiday and I love to write. I love to write. I'm not the best writer in the world, but I like to write. And I wrote a thing called, with my name being Tomo, everyone shouts, all right, Tomo. I wrote a thing called Tomo Dickinari. And it's about three, three, my character Tomo gets left the building yard and he gets his two mates and they start a little building firm in Liverpool. And there's some lovely characters in it, you know. And then... Um, the BBC we're going to do is, I'm going back such a long, long time. And they actually said to me, do you know any writers? I said, I know loads of writers. They said, well, you pick six. I'll pick six. And we'll pick the six out of 12. And they'll be the follow-up episode. I said, okay. So I got Jimmy McGovern, Andy Lynch, Alan Swift, Neil Fitzmaurice, um, I can't remember who did it to it, but I, I picked six. Yeah. And they picked it. And they, anyway, they picked four of my six, Neil Fitzmaurice, Jimmy, Allen, and, and Andy Lynch. And that was it. And then all of a sudden, they just cancelled it. Oh. They just cancelled the whole lot. So I was telling Steve Nesbitt about it when we were doing Gloves Up. And he went, I'd like to read that, Rick. Anyway, I rooted round it, because it was years ago. Years ago, rooted. Anyway, we found a copy. And I sent him it, and he was made up with it. Anyway, we've recently shot a pilot of it, a 15-minute pilot, with me as, as Tommy, a Tomo, Gary Cargill as Dick, and Johnny Vegas as Harry. Wow. And do you know what, Johnny, there's a bit of serious stuff in it, obviously. Vegas, is there's a little scene where he's got to be set, is absolutely wonderful. And we shot it in an old builder's yard, a fellow in Liverpool, but the builder's yard said, yeah, I used the yard. Used the yard as long as you want, we don't want nothing for it. Anyway, we shot this 15-minute pilot. We've got a, a local lad called uh, Morris Cheetham who's doing the music. And we've shown the pilot, and do you know what, lad? It's, it's, I think it's going to be great. And I've had a phone call in the last few days. That the, and he, he won't tell me the name of the company. That there's a company who are very, very interested in taking it on. And I would be delighted with that because it would be made in Liverpool with Liverpool actors, Liverpool crew, but Northern, Northern crew, Northern actors and stuff like that. And uh, because, I, I, I don't know if you know this or not, I'm, I'm a freeman of the city of Liverpool. I'm a freeman of the city of Liverpool and I love Liverpool. And whenever I go anywhere and whenever I'm speaking to them, I say, look, from time to time, I might let myself down. I would never let Liverpool down. And it's funny enough because Phil Redmond, who wrote Brookside, he's just had his Freeman of the City Award. Um, and I was there at the ceremony with a couple of the writers we've just been talking about. 
And I said, isn't this amazing? Like, it's it's 40 years, isn't it, since Brookside? Yeah, it's crazy. 40 years, and there we are together, Phil, getting to sleep with them in the city. And I said, well, at least I beat you to something, Phil. Now, listen, lad, I have a wonderful life. I've got wonderful grandchildren. I've got a, a new uh, great-grandson who's great. My uh, The lad who lives around the corner, he's 13, Louis. He's got his own band called the Babyface Beatles. They've played everywhere. They've even played on the Liverpool uh, Philharmonic Hall. Wow. He's in the Philharmonic Choir. He's a wonderful guitarist, a wonderful guitarist. And for Christmas, I'm buying him. He wants a bass guitar to learn the bass. Last uh, year, we bought him a piano. We played the piano. And I get such a kick out of my grandkids. It's amazing. We have the two little ones from over the water. We have them... Uh, probably once, at least once a fortnight, never, never sleep over. And I ruined them completely. So all the good work the parents do is totally ruined <laughs> by the time they go home. That's when they say, can I have, I say yes. Everything you can want. I have, yeah. yes. And Rita said to me, y- you shouldn't do that. You ruined them. <laughs> and I said, listen, when I was a kid, we struggled with four of us in one bed. Yeah. It was only a two-bedroom house. And, and, and the rooms were about, I don't know, 10 foot square, 12 foot square. So you couldn't you couldn't get two beds in, so there'd be a big a big double bed and be me, me three brothers in that bed. So you know, uh, yeah, I do. I ruined me kid, I ruined me grandkids. I ruined my grandkids, and I think it's a grandparent's duty to ruin their grandkids. You know, because you spend more time with them than you did with your own. Yeah. Because you know, I, I used to do two jobs. I'd be working to plaster sort of eight till five or whatever. Then I'd drive into Liverpool because I was living in North Wales in a little village. I'd drive into Liverpool and I'd do the social clubs, entertain them, you know, half eight till 11 o'clock, so it'd be midnight or more, gone midnight, but by the time you get home. So you'd hardly seen your own kids, and so you, you make it up, obviously, to your, to your your grandkids, and I wouldn't want it any other way, kid. Looking back, like, what, what advice would you give to people to have a better life? Because you sound like you're really enjoying life. The fact that you take this time to meet people. I got told once you never turn down an autograph, you never turn down a photo. That's Listen rare. To this. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you've asked me this. And I want you to put this in this article. It'll all be in. I pride myself on never, ever, ever turning anyone down for an autograph or a photograph. I pride myself on it. But I did once, once, and you know, it's haunted me, kid. It's haunted me, and I wish I could get hold of the lady to say, I am so, so sorry. And what it was, I was in the Lake District. I'm going back years, I was in the Lake District, and I was having a cup of tea, in, in, like, in, in, outside the, the, the cafe or whatever it was, and um, a lady come up to me for an autograph, but I was reading the paper, and I was reading about the case, it still haunts me now, about this little girl, what was her name? They made a lot about This little girl had been kidnapped and they found her in a field of wheat and, and they had to get the parents to identify her because obviously she'd been there a few days and so, you yeah. know, foxes and that must have got at the kitty. What was the name of the little girl? Bloody hell. It haunted me and I was reading this and I was so upset and this woman said to me, do you mind, can I have an autograph? And I said, no, no, you can't. And she walked away, and ten seconds later, I could have bit me tongue off. Yeah. Oh, what was that little girl's name? They brought a law out about her. It was hot. I can still see the parents now. I can still see the mother. And this little girl was missing. Everyone was looking for her for days. 
and oh, it was, oh, she was obviously well yeah. dead and that and that. That's the only time in my, and it's haunted me, you know. I wish, I wish I could find that woman from the Lake District and just say, look, I'm so sorry. I was, I was reading it and because it, it got to me, you know. Yeah. This little kid, like she'd been in the field for two or three days in a wheel, in a field of, in a field of wheat. Yeah. And they brought, they must, I'm sure they brought a law out named after her. Someone had bloody kidnapped her and took her and that, you know, and the parents were devastated. Um, anyway, I've never forgiven myself for this anyway, but there you go. It's, I just wish I could turn the clock back, but I can't. But the circumstances were understandable, and the fact that that's only a one-off, I've met so many people that say, nope, no photos, no autographs, just walk straight oh, well, past. Oh, that's a load of bollocks. Yeah. That's, that's crap. What's wrong with them? While they're, while they're getting there on the way up, they can't wait for people to come and ask them for photographs and autographs. Yeah. And once they're there, they think that they're immediately... Oh, there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with them. Now and again, I go out with a fella. He's just, in fact, we're doing a documentary about him now, actually. It's nearly finished. His name's Gary Skiner. And he was one of the first Thalidomide people born in the country, you know. Right. And um, he's just got, like, two little hands coming out of his shoulders. And, and now and again, I go out with him. And then uh, and he's, he's a wonderful comedian. He's very funny. And people say to me, can I have an autograph and I can photograph? And I say, yeah. So what I do now, this might sound crazy, but, you know, I'm telling you the truth. I put my Jim Royal vest under me, under me shirt when I go out. Yeah. And I take my shirt off and I put my Jim Royal glasses on. So I've got me, and I say, and anyone want a photograph? They queue up, lad, for me to the bloody Golden Mile in Blackpool. <laughs> so I'm a photograph with Jim Royal. And the lads say, come on, Ricky. And I say, hang on. And gone, it only takes a few more minutes. Probably takes you an hour to get out of whatever the venue is. Yeah. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it. And then people are made up. Yeah. And, and some of them, I say some of them photograph. Say, can you speak to me, ma'am? She's in the hospital. Can you speak to me, daughter, before she goes to bed? <laughs> you do it. You've got to do it all, haven't you? It means a lot, mate. On the receiving end of someone that's met some of their heroes that have said no or they haven't got time or they don't even look at you, to know that you do that for them, honestly, it's it's worth more than anything to those people. Well, listen to this, lad. Um, Robert De Niro was speaking in Leeds shortly. He may, may have already just done it, I don't know. Uh, the tickets are from like £300 to £800 to go and see him, you know? Yeah. And it's somewhere in Leeds, I think it might be the town hall. I actually went up to Robert De Niro in the Groucho Club at Roland Joffey's 50th birthday. And he had a little goatee beard and a, and a ponytail, and I, I didn't have a clue who he was. And then um, he seemed to be on his own. And I'd been invited to Roland's uh, 40th birthday party because he was leaving England and going to work in the States, which he did. He, he went to do um, at the Scarlet Letter and some. Anyway, she's still in the States. And I went up to Robert De Niro and I said, Are you okay? And he went, Yeah. And I said, Are you in show business? Wow. Are you in show business to Robert, <laughs> to De, Robert De Niro? <laughs> Thank God. Jeremy Irons and uh, I think it was Liam Neeson walked in between me as I said it. So he, 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 he didn't hear me, he didn't hear the, the question. And then Roland, whose birthday party it was, come across to me and he went, Rick, I want you to meet him. And then that's when he introduced me, he said, Rick, this is Robert De Niro. <laughs> 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 oh, bloody hell. 
well. I bet he loved that, though. I bet he was like, wow. Well, I mean, I, I wanted to try and get up to Leeds to see him, and I don't know that I can or not, whether he's actually done the, the evening with, but um, he was certainly very nice when, when I met him. He was absolutely lovely, you know. But, yeah, listen, lad, I've had ups and downs, and, and I've been the luckiest guy in the world, and... You know, and I love Roland Chaffee, but he took a chance on me. That man took a chance on me. It changed my life. Yeah. It changed my life. And not only did it change my life, it changed my children's lives and my grandchildren's lives. And it, it, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And I love, every, I love every day. I love every day. And not everyone can say that. No. I love every day. And, you know, and there's always something to do, there's always somewhere to go. And, well, you know, it doesn't get much better than that, kid. Mate, it's uh, amazing to hear that I think sometimes there's karma or there's good stuff out there because you are one of the nicest guys I've ever spoken to. The amount you do for people, I've read how much you do for charity, and oh. you're, you're nearly 80 and you sound yeah. like you're still a kid. God bless you, lads. Good luck to you, son. Thanks for your time, sir, and I'll speak to you soon. God bless. Ta-da, lads. Take care, mate. Ta-da. So there it is. There's me and Ricky Tomlinson. What a great guy. Really, really friendly, really upbeat, just a really lovely guy. And the thing is, when you get these interviews, sometimes when a big name, someone that you've watched on TV for years comes along, you're a little bit scared because you don't want to do the interview in case they're not kind of what you thought or you'd hoped. And they say never meet your heroes, but with Ricky Tomlinson, he was more than I could have asked for. He was just great and I'm so grateful he's been on today to celebrate episode 50. As I've said on the last couple of episodes, this is all to celebrate the release of the film Gloves Off and I want you all to kind of go back and listen to the previous two episodes because I was joined by Brad Moore who's the main actor in this film and then Steve Nesbitt the director so it's a nice little trilogy special for you all. It is now the end of the year and I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas and basically a Happy New Year. And thank you for supporting me in 2018. It's been a crazy year with 25 episodes released, so it's been quite full on. And it's just been a really good roller coaster of a ride. I've got to meet people like Mads Mickelson. I've had some really, really good highs and not many lows, so I'm not going to complain. It's been a good year. And I'm hoping that 2019 is going to be more of the same, lots more interviews, and I am going to be launching something brand new. But I'm not going to say at this point what it is but it is going to be something completely different and completely new for you all. I've already been doing a lot of interviews over the last few weeks, getting them in the bag, and I've got enough material now till the end of April, so we've <laughs> it's been full on most nights, and even on my lunch break at work the other day, I was sat with my laptop and a phone recording a brand new interview because they could only do one o'clock in the afternoon, but you know, I'm not going to turn down any interviews that I can get for you guys. In the meantime, if you can keep going on markandme.com, there's links to my Twitter, my Facebook, my Instagram and my Patreon. My Patreon is building up momentum now. I'm getting quite a few people supporting me. You can go on there and offer just as little as sort of 60p a month. That might not seem a lot, but it makes a huge difference. It gives me a chance to travel the country, get more and more guests. And, you know, this is just me. It's literally me in a bedroom recording and going out there and doing it all myself. So any support goes a long, long way. Again, thanks again for supporting me this year. I really hope you've enjoyed episode 50 and here's to the next 50.